Now, today we're going to um, continue on with the series. Uh, next week will be the last, but now we're going to jump from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And today we're going to be looking at a group of people, um, not necessarily just one, uh, but it's none other than the disciples. Now, we're going to be looking at how the life of the disciples were radically transformed and challenged by Jesus. And we're going to see how their expectations and their conception of the world and of how God works and who Jesus really was, was literally flipped upside down. Okay. Now, the disciples of Jesus, uh, first of all, were a group of people uh, who had many different backgrounds. Um, uh, this group was made of people who were fishermen, there was a tax collector, and literally they were just everyday, average, normal people. And as they journeyed through uh, their, their life and uh, as they followed Jesus around, their characters were shaped and were transformed uh, throughout the journey. But in order to, uh, for us to understand uh, how radically Jesus changed them, and how their expectations and their conceptions were, um, we need to first look at uh, what they were before Jesus, right? So in other words, uh, I like to call this the BC of the disciples, uh, or the before Christ uh, of their experience with, with Jesus. Uh, now, this may be a review for some of you guys, uh, but if it is new or maybe this is a good refresher, uh, I want to go over this with you. Uh, here's a picture I'm going to show you guys um, of the 12 disciples. Uh, it's a, like a cute like illustration of the 12. Um, we don't know if, we probably don't know exactly what they look like. There's probably interpretations and ideals of what they could look like based on uh, the people of that region and of that time. Uh, but this is just for illustration purposes. But here are the 12 disciples and the 12 disciples are Simon Peter, we have Andrew, we have James, who is the son of Zebedee, um, John, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, or known as the younger James, um, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Okay, So these are the 12 that we know of. Uh, and obviously, Jesus also had many other people that followed him as well. But these were considered the 12. Right? Now, for some of these disciples, uh, we know what their occupation was prior to meeting Jesus. Um, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they were all fishermen. We know Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, Simon, um, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot was obviously a zealot. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't actually tell us about Judas Iscariot in terms of his prior previous occupation. We know that he was the money holder uh, when he was following Jesus, but we don't know exactly what he did before. But we can, uh, Bible scholars like to assume that possibly he had something to do with finances or money or accounting of some kind similar to that of Matthew, but there's no conclusive evidence in the Bible that that points to his life before meeting Jesus. Um, for the rest, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus, or, or in other words, the younger James, uh, we don't know what they did, uh, who they were, or really any information about, um, about what their prior occupations were before meeting Christ. Now, these people, Jesus' disciples, before becoming Jesus' disciples, were living in a time of Roman occupation. Now, 
The Jewish people were constantly under some kind of oppression, some kind of pressure, some kind of, of ruling um, of, of another country over them. Right. If you remember from our, our series, our sermon about Daniel two weeks ago, we find that the children of Israel, God's very people, being taken up into this thing called the Babylonian exile. And from that point onward, we see this repetitive theme, not very, uh, uh, not a very happy theme, but a repetitive theme of, of God's people being caught up into some kind of occupation or some kind of um, oppression by a different country and we find themselves in this we find them in this situation and they're all yearning and longing for a better day they're longing for something better than what they were in at that moment right so for our 12 disciples we have to understand that that this was the reality in which they lived with it wasn't as if and a lot of the times maybe it's just me uh, but there's always this conception, this ideal that, oh, they were just living their lives and, and life was just whatever. Um, there was no issues. It was just life. But, but we have to understand that the, 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 the premise and the background of everything that's going on in that time and place was that they were constantly under this pressure of some kind of, of occupation, of some kind of, of, of different country that's oppressing uh, them and, and making their lives miserable, right? Now, uh, the disciples, all 12 of them, uh, actually, not all 12, 11 of them, for sure, we can say, uh, were considered a part of this lower class of society. You know, they had the land, they had all the resources, but due to heavy taxations um, of the Romans, literally everything was taken away from them, right? Life wasn't easy, it was challenging, there was many difficulties, yet many of these people, Many of these disciples, um, prior to meeting Jesus, would hold on to this promise that one day God would redeem his people. God would save them and free them from their oppression. Now, I, the reason why I say 11 is because uh, Matthew, the tax collector, uh, even though, yes, he was of Jewish descent. Yes, he uh, was um, under this oppression, so to say, he was kind of lifted up on a pedestal because he was the one that would be taking the, the taxes from his own people and giving it to the Romans. And so uh, tax collectors, uh, and this is something that I feel like I've shared, but maybe I haven't, uh, but tax collectors were looked down upon by their own people. So tax collectors were literally the, the, the downcast of the downcast of the Jewish nation, right? Because they saw them as traitors. Even family did not appreciate when their children became a tax collector and were looked down upon. And it was almost as if they disowned their own children because they didn't want to have to deal with the, the eyes and the stares and the rumors and the gossip that would go around about them because their child was working with the Roman government. Um, and so Matthew, the tax collector, was probably the only one uh, that, that didn't have to deal as much with uh, the Roman occupation, so to say. Uh, he probably was well fed. He probably had lots of money um, and he was taken care of and protected by the Romans because that was his source of income. Uh, so or the Roman source of income was coming through a man named Matthew. Right. Uh, but anyways, as I digress, um, this, this situation that all, all these people, the Jewish people are in, they hold on to this promise. And this is where we get the idea of a Messiah. Now, in Messiah, uh, now Messiah in the Hebrew is, 
Meshiach, uh, and you'll see here on the screen the Hebrew and uh, the transliteration, uh, the Meshiach, and this means the chosen one, right? Or, in other words, the anointed one. So some of your Bibles may have translated, like newer translations may have it that way. Um, and we find this language of the Meshiach or the Messiah used more frequently in the Old Testament. Uh, but while in the New Testament, uh, Christ, which is in the Greek, uh, Christos, uh, carries the same meaning of the chosen one or the anointed. Uh, so these two terms are used uh, interchangeably, right? Uh, and I think I've shared this as well, but Jesus Christ is not like his first name, last name. Christ is a title, right? And so just like Messiah is used to designate the, the anointed one or the chosen one, Jesus Christ is is basically saying Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Chosen One, Jesus the Anointed, right? Uh, I used to get that confused as a kid that I thought Jesus' last name was Christ, uh, but then I realized uh, that wasn't the case. But anyway, um, it's important to understand this theme of Messiah, uh, and we see it throughout the Bible. It's, it's a very prevalent theme, and so it's important that we understand this. And so let's look back at the very beginning of where we find this ideal of the Messiah. So, I've done this a few times in, in this series, especially uh, uh, going back to the very beginning and going back to creation. And this is no other. Uh, this is also the case for understanding the Messiah that we need to go back to the very beginning to see how we can see this Messiah theme being built and cultivated throughout the biblical narrative. Um, but we're not going to read uh, all of it in Genesis, uh, but we find that after Adam and Eve fall to the temptation of the serpent in the garden, uh, God announces a curse between all three parties involved, right? Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, and see the curse that God uh, kind of lays out. This is what it says, Genesis 3, 14 to 15. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On the belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, notice in verse 15, uh, this is where we have the beginnings and the, the foundation of our understanding of the theme of the Messiah. Because you see, the serpent uh, and the sin that entered our world, uh, we find time after time again uh, of this battle between the evils of this world and God, right? So sin is a problem for both those who reject God but also for those who choose God, right? And I think this is a reality that we can all understand. When we just look out our window, look at the news, when we look at the things that are happening, we know that sin is a problem. And we know that sin uh, is affects both those that choose to follow God and those that do not follow God, right? There's no, no uh, filter for sin. Sin affects all, right? And if we look at the children of Israel, it's very clear that we see the children of Israel falling time after time again because of sin. Uh, and it all starts from the beginning of time. But from this point on here in Genesis, we see that God gives these promises and these hints that there will be a day that in which sin will be no more, that suffering will be no more and pain will be no more. 
And there's this idea and this theme throughout the biblical narrative that there will be a chosen one. There will be a Messiah who comes from the seed of Abraham, who comes from uh, that of Judah, and who comes from the line of King David. And we see throughout the Old Testament this prevalent theme um, about a Messiah. The prophets talk about it all the time. And there's many different verses that I could share with you. But let me just share you a few from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 1 to 4. It says this. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, or some of your translations say the chosen one, my chosen one in whom my soul's delight. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and float smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Look at Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3, and this is what it says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness the planting of the lord that he may be glorified now there's so much more there's a lot of different references of the old testament that talk about a messiah and very clearly we you know if you read through the gospels there are references saying that yes like the the old testament said this or they said this and the prophet said that um, and, you know, John the Baptist points towards that there will be one that, that cries out in the desert, right? There's prophecy after prophecy and, and scripture after scripture of the Old Testament that refers to this ideal of a Messiah that will one day come and free uh, the people of Israel, right? And this ideal, proclaim liberty to the captives, comfort to those who mourn, to bring justice, right? These are the images that most people of that time, if not all people, uh, were waiting for in a Messiah. This is what they imagined, right? Because you see, living in this time of uncertainty, living in this time of oppression, of hurt and pain of years and years, the Jewish people with hundreds of years of hurt under their belt are now waiting for a Messiah to come and liberate them and set them free from the pain that they are experiencing. Now, this was the expectation that they held on to. This was the understanding that the, how things were going to be one day, right? They believed that a Messiah would come and free them from the Roman oppressors, right? And they believed that their Messiah would come and establish them once again, a new kingdom. So, uh, how many of you guys have had um, expectations? Like, I'm sure many of us have had some kind of expectation along the lines, Um, whether it be an expectation for your significant other, for your husband, your wife, uh, for your children, um, for for kids, maybe for your friends, uh, maybe of your school or maybe of your parents, right? We've all had expectations and uh, I'm one that always held on to expectations or had these expectations 
uh, that lined every little aspect of my uh, my small childhood. Um, one of the things when I was growing up, uh, and even now, one of my favorite holidays, and I think for kids, one of the greatest holidays to look forward to uh, is not Thanksgiving. <laughs> Uh, I think I appreciate Thanksgiving a lot more now older, uh, but Christmas. Christmas is probably one of the greatest holidays uh, that all younger kids look forward to. And why is that? Uh, other than your birthday, uh, Christmas was another time to receive presents, right? And Christmas presents are always the best presents, right? Well, maybe that could be debatable. Um, but um, the reason why that Christmas is such a loved holiday by, holiday by younger people and, and by me is this ideal of receiving gifts, right? Now, when I was growing up, uh, my family actually wasn't that into like presents and things like that. But every once in a while, there would be like these random moments where my father or my mother would decide to get us a gift um, or like church members or somebody, uh, aunt, uncle would, would bring us um, a gift. And I always look forward to that. Now, while growing up with mostly non-Asian uh, descent people and going to a school that was basically just, you know, uh, a bunch of um, non-Korean and, and, and non-Asian people, um, there was, they would always share and we would share with each other about like the things that would happen during Christmas and the gifts that they would get. And it was always an exciting time because we'd always like think about it. And then after the break, we'd come back and be like, Oh, look what I got for Christmas and whatnot. And so I would always hear these things and these wonderful rumors about the kinds of gifts that people would get. And they would be talking about things like the toys they would get, the video games. Uh, when I was growing up, like Heelys and and like things like that were the in, right? And those, those are the cool things. Like if you got a video game, like you are cool, right? And so I was like super excited and hearing these things from all my friends. Um, but every year, um, without fail, one of the gifts that I would always get uh, every year at Christmas, and maybe some of you guys can relate, um, and, and probably the worst gift any 10-year-old child uh, would, would get. Um, do you guys know what it is? It's clothes, right? As a 10-year-old kid, you don't want clothes. You don't need clothes, right? Oh, my parents give me clothes anyways. Why do I need clothes, right? I would always get socks, underwear, t-shirts, maybe a few pants every once in a while. But as a 10-year-old child, that was by far one of the most disappointing things ever, right? Uh, obviously now, if I were to receive like socks, underwear, like t-shirts and things like that, uh, it's like one of the greatest things ever. Um, but uh, as a 10-year-old, there's this expectation that, that I would get all the cool things that all other 10-year-olds were getting, right? Toys, games, uh, Heelys, and, and so on. But whenever I got clothes, whenever I got something that uh, I was not expecting, then very clearly uh, heartbreaking, right? Uh, textbooks, math textbooks, a schedule book. Uh, my father used to always carry, or he still carries a schedule book around. Um, and there was a stint, stint of my childhood where I wanted to be like him. So I wanted a schedule book. Uh, but then after a while, I just didn't want it. I wanted a toy, you know. But anyways, I digress. Uh, now, this may not be the best illustration to share. Uh, but when we look at the disciples, uh, imagine with me this, right? They all have their expectations of what a Messiah is going to look like as well. Their people are oppressed. Their people are hurting. 
every day they have to live with the reality that there are Roman soldiers um, smelling behind the back of their heads, right? Every little thing that they do, that's probably the wrong expression, uh, but basically they're, they're interrogating and, and making their life miserable and they're looking over their shoulder all the time. And there's this expectation that one day God will redeem them from that oppression, from these people looking over our shoulder all the time, right? And, and they're waiting for this Messiah to come as this like warrior, right? This warrior figure that will overthrow this Roman kingdom and then establish a new kingdom, right? To establish worship at the temple as it was in the good old days, right? But then comes Jesus, who is considered and claims to be this Messiah, right? He's everything but the things that they're expecting, right? Yeah, he's Jewish. Yeah, his background of his lineage, where he's coming from, it fits all the descriptions and all the expectations, right? Just like me expecting a gift. Yeah, a gift is a gift, right? But the contents of the gift was not what I expected, right? And just like the Jewish people of Jesus' time, yes, Jesus fit the description. Yet, the contents of who Jesus was, was not what, the, what they were expecting, right? Jesus comes and he challenges their assumptions and their conceptions of who the Messiah is, what he was supposed to do and what he looked like. You see, for a lack of better terms, the Israelite people, the Jewish people were, were stuck up, arrogant group of believers. You see, they had this sense of pride, a sense of being a chosen group by God. And, and even to the point where I dare to say that they almost had a superiority complex against other nations, right? Now, with that, there was this underlying misconception that the Messiah would come for God's people. And so, obviously, the Jewish people thought, well, a Messiah is going to come for me, right? Only for me, not for anyone else, not for you Gentiles, but for me, not even for the Romans, but for me, right? So in other words, for them, if you were not a Jew, okay, then basically you were, in, you were not considered anything. You were a nobody, right? And salvation and this redemption of, of God and this Messiah was not for you. Right? But this is, let me give you an example. Let me share with you an example of what Jesus was really challenging in their conception and their ideals, right? Uh, there's a parable that Jesus shares that I really appreciate. Um, but it's Luke 10, verse 25 to 37, and it's a very well-known parable. Uh, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I want to read this story with you, um, so if you don't mind, uh, let's read Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, and this is what it says. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, And this is the parable. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed him, departed and leaving him half dead. 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he sat set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of them, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Do, or go, and do likewise. A lot of the times when we look at this parable, uh, we talk about the importance of who our neighbor is. And I mean, um, that's the more simplified interpretation of this parable. It's a call to love your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? It's everyone, right? Uh, And obviously, there's so much that we can pull out from here. But the one thing that I do want to pull out is this. You see, Jesus is challenging their deeply embedded ideas of racism, right? You see, Jesus is speaking to an audience that's predominantly a Jewish audience, right? And so imagine with me, as they're hearing this parable, they're seeing that the only person, the only person that shows compassion to that man that's hurting and that was robbed and left half dead was a Samaritan. Now, as a Bible scholar, as all of you guys are now, okay, you know that Jews and Samaritans don't get along very well. They don't associate, right? Samaritans worship in the mountains. Jews worship in the temples, right? There's this divide. There is a split between these two groups of people. And never ever do they take the time to talk with each other or even take care of each other, right? But Jesus is trying to show a different paradigm. Jesus is trying to change and challenge the way that they imagined a Messiah to be and the teachings of the Messiah uh, Everything is radically being transformed now, right? The disciples' understanding and the expectation that they had on Jesus was now being changed, okay? And and, and in this parable particularly, right, Jesus, this Messiah, Jesus is saying, it's not about race. It's not about your ethnic background. It's about people, right? But And slowly but surely, right? Jesus was slowly, parable after parable, event after event, teaching after teaching, Jesus was reshaping their understanding and their conception of who the Messiah was to be and what he was going to do. Another correction and another thing that Jesus had to constantly remind his disciples uh, was the nature and the ideal of the kingdom of God uh, and uh, the role of the Messiah in light of that. Right. And I, I remember I shared with you earlier that the Jewish people were under Roman occupation and oppression, and they were seeking a Messiah that would, in essence, become this military political king who would establish their a new kingdom and get rid of the Romans. Right. And so, in other words, their expectation and the image that they created of Jesus was that of a political ruler and a political leader. Right. That's exactly what they were looking for. And even until the end of time, which this is very interesting to me, um, when, when Jesus was on this earth, right before he was go, about to go back to heaven, look at Acts chapter 1 verse 6, right? The disciples asked Jesus this. They're like, therefore, when they had come together and they had asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, right? So even until the very end, they're just like, God, like uh, Jesus, you know, you're the Messiah. So we're supposed to be getting a new kingdom soon, like. Is that going to happen now? Like, 
you know, you've you resurrected, like, is, are you going to bring it, right? And, and even until this point, they had this misconception and they had shaped this Messiah image into something that was still very political, right? Now, granted, I'm sure by this point in their walk with God uh, or with Jesus, the disciples had a little bit of a better grasp of what kingdom Jesus was talking about. And I think there was a lot of confusion about it. But I'm sure by this point in the future, into later into their, their uh, ministries, as they continue to be- become disciples for God, um, I'm pretty sure they understood. Uh, but Jesus' response to this question in verse 7 and 8 of Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 verse 7 and 8 and says, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and shall be witness, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus very clearly was not referring to a political kingdom or uprising, right? But he was talking about a future kingdom that would eradicate and eliminate all sin, right? Once and for all. You see, Jesus was here to promote a new kind of kingdom, right? A kingdom that wouldn't come now uh, as the disciples wanted it to be, and I'm sure many of the Jewish people at that time wanted it to be, but it would come on God's time. You see, God was redeeming the world slowly, right? Theologians use this German word, and if you can speak German, uh, I apologize for the butchering, uh, but it's this word here, it's Heilsgeschichte, right? Which means salvation history, right? And it's this ideal that when we look at the Bible and the narrative of the entire Bible, we see that, that it's a story of the fall of humanity and how God is working to redeem humans and this world with Jesus being the focal point of this process, right? So this story of redemption continues for us today. You see, the gift of salvation is not just extended to the people of that time, but the gift of salvation is extended to us in this very moment in 2020. And this is the thing. It's a process, right? It's a process that takes time. But more specifically, it's God's time and not our time. And this is what becomes so challenging for all of us, right? We live in a culture that's about now, 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 right? In in, in an instant, right? A microwave, right? Think of a microwave. It's the most instant thing you can ever think of, right? Food that's frozen can become warm and hot and ready to eat in just a few minutes. Right? We live and, and we're so used to this culture and society that's about instant gratification, right? Instant communication, instant connection, right? When your Wi-Fi connection is slow or the connection is weak, we complain, we get upset. We, we think like, wow, we need to upgrade our internet. Like, oh, I need to find a place that has better connection. Like, what's wrong with my company, right? We want faster, faster, right? TV shows, game shows, You can have everything now. You instantly, just with the sound of your voice, you can win millions of dollars, a brand new car, right? This ideal of everything needs to happen now, right? We live in this culture and we we live and we're so used to this ideal of everything being so instant. I think sometimes we, we think 
like, why doesn't God just finish things now? Why doesn't God just come now and, and stop all the evil and stop all the pain and the suffering? Why doesn't God come and send Jesus right after the fall of Adam and Eve in the beginning of Genesis chapter 4? Why couldn't God just send Jesus then and then redeem the world in that moment? And none of this would have ever had to happen. Right? Why is it that we have to deal with the uncertainty and, and the difficult climate of now? Why doesn't Jesus bring the kingdom now, right? And these kind of thoughts and these kind of understandings, I think is heavily influenced by, by the culture and, and the lifestyle that we live in this now, now, now kind of world, right? But I believe, and I pray that you'll see as well, and as hopefully you can see through the past uh, sermons that we've done and the series that we've gone through, that our God is truly a wise God. You see, there are no quick fixes for sin. I I strongly believe that. And especially for the effects of what sin does, there are no easy answers and no quick fixes. You see, God isn't this kind of microwave God, right? But God is this home-cooked meal from scratch kind of God, right? And most people would prefer to choose, uh, if you were given a choice between a TV dinner and a home-cooked meal, uh, most of you, if not all of you, would prefer that home-cooked meal, right? Yes, it takes time. Yes, it takes more effort. And maybe there's more frustration. But in the end, it's so worth it. And usually, it's better for you. And I think God operates in this way as well. That, yes, it takes more time. Yes, it can be very confusing and frustrating. But in the end, it is so much more worth it. You see, God is working within His time. And as we move through history, yes, there may, may be many times that our expectation of who God is, our hopes, our desires, we may imagine God to be this God that is more instant than anything, right? We want answers. We want quick fixes now. But you see, Paul understands this ideal. Uh, and he says in Romans 5, verse 1 to 5, this is what he says. Romans 5, 1 to 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, church, God's timing is so, so good. Right? God understands and that in time, all things will come together for the glory of God. You see, Paul understands this ideal that that there's glory, God's glory is in our tribulation and that tribulation produces these things, right? Tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And you see, God is not this microwave God. God is this home-cooked meal made from scratch kind of God, right? Just as we see in the lives of the disciples, their expectations and their understandings of how God works was radically shaped and transformed and changed by Jesus. You see, we live in a world where our desires, our wants, our shapes, our, and our, expect, our desires and our wants shape our expectations of who we want Jesus to be to us in 2020. But especially at a time like now, where there's so much uncertainty and fear in our lives, 
I want to challenge you as we look at the lives of the disciples. I want to challenge you to allow Jesus to reshape those expectations that you may have and your understandings of who God is. You see, instead of building a Jesus that fits our own desires, that fits our model and our mold, right? Let's allow Jesus to build us, right? To build, to build and to shape our desires and to allow our characters to be more like Him rather than more like the things of this world. You see, this may be challenging for some, if not all of us. At least for me, I think this has been always a challenge. As I study the Bible, as I study Scripture, and I study the spirit of prophecy, and I see how God is working in the lives of people, and, and maybe there's something that, that I've fostered in my understanding of God for years and years and years. And, and Jesus comes into this picture and tries to fit me into this new mold. Sometimes it's, it, we want to resist. Sometimes we're just not used to it. And just because we're not used to it doesn't mean that it's wrong, right? And we see here that just like the disciples, their model and their mold of who the Messiah was, was radically transformed and changed parable after parable, teaching after teaching, healing after healing. But let us be reminded that in all of this, God remains good. And that's such a beautiful constant that we can hold on to, right? God will always be good. God has always been good. And so in this, just as the disciples held on to the fact that Jesus was truly a good God, Jesus was truly a good person, and Jesus was someone that they could trust and believe in, they allowed Jesus to radically transform the way that they saw the Messiah, the way that they understood the kingdom and the future that was yet to come. And I pray that we as a church, can also hold on to this faith and this hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.